We only had one New Testament scripture reading earlier. And that's because one of those readings is what I'm going to preach on this morning. And I figured you didn't want me to hear, you didn't want to hear me read it twice. So we're just going to read it once. And if you will turn with me in your Bibles for our scripture reading for the sermon this morning, we're going to look together at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, and we're going to read together verses 9 through 21. This is God's holy word for us, his people, this morning. Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it. To the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's holy word for us this morning. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, this is indeed your word, and we pray that you would make the reading and now especially the preaching of this word powerful, life-giving, life-changing. You alone have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? So you be our teacher. You speak to us from your word today, Lord, and give us hearts to receive it with joy and eagerness to obey. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Apostles' Creed, which is our primary confession of faith, the one that we recite most weeks in public worship, in that creed, we confess that we believe in the communion of saints. The communion of saints. But I wonder, have you ever stopped to consider what that means? I believe in the communion of saints. What do you think that means? What is that that you believe in? Maybe a more interesting question is, what do you think you're saying? What do you think you are saying you believe 
when you recite those words before God and before your neighbor as an act of worship. That's what I want us to think about together this morning. Now, our, our Puritan and Reformed forefathers, thankfully, did not leave us in the dark to figure this out ourselves. I think we could figure it out, but, if, but they're smarter than us, and they figured it out for us. And actually, they put it into the Westminster Confession of Faith. Thankfully. In Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26, which I've brought with us here, in the EPC's updated modern English edition. It's a little more bland, but it gets the point across. It's not as pretty as that King James sounding uh, original 1646-47 confession, but it gets the job done. In chapter 26, we have three paragraphs dedicated to this topic. Now, before we get into what the confession says and what, more importantly, Scripture says, we should just pause and ask, why is this topic even important? Why even spend a Sunday thinking about it? That's a, that is a very good question. Why is this a topic worthy of our attention? And I think there's probably more than one answer. Here's my, here's my answer. It's because this topic, understanding what the communion of the saints is, since we say we believe it, then we kind of need to know what we mean when we say we believe it. Because we're telling God every week, I mean, except this week because it's the Nicene Creed, but most weeks we're saying, I, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in the communion of saints. Do you? <laughs> in other words, knowing what it means and knowing if we agree or not will help us be honest when we recite the creed in worship. Because we don't want to tell God we believe something that we don't actually believe. God, I believe in this. Fingers crossed behind your back. We don't want to do that. We want to mean it when we say we believe it, but to do that, we've got to know what it is. So just a matter of understanding what we do and what we say in worship makes this important. Another, another reason it's important is this. It teaches us what our church should look like on the inside. In the last several weeks, we've been talking about the kingdom mission of the church. Matthew 10, the Sermon on the Mission. We finished that up last week. And in that series, we were talking about this kingdom mission for our church. And not just our local church, but the church in the Great Commission. And we learned that this is what our church should look like on the outside. We're a kingdom church that is on the move in our community and in our neighborhoods, and in the world. We are pursuing the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. And that's what we're doing. That's outward focus. That's what we look like on the outside. What we look like on the inside, once we spread the message of the kingdom and somebody repents and believes it and wants to join our church and sit in the pews and get involved, what are we bringing them into? That's what this topic's about. The communion of the saints is the life of our church once you come inside of it and join it and take part in it. The kingdom mission is what we should look like on the outside. Communion of the saints is about what we look like on the inside. Now, the basic idea of biblical communion is found in Acts chapter 2. At the very foundation moment of the church, we find how the church is organized in terms of the communion 
of the saints. And in Acts chapter 2, we, we read this in verses 42 and following. And they, these brand new converts on the day of Pentecost, they, the saints, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That word fellowship is the same word where we get our idea of community and communion. It's the same word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the communion of the saints, to the breaking of bread, which is what we'll do after the sermon with the Lord's Supper, and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. Skipping down to verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food or their meals with glad and generous hearts. So this is what the communion of the saints looked like at the very beginning of the church. What they gave themselves to was learning the doctrines of the apostles, the faith, the teaching, and to a community, a fellowship, a communion of the saints, sharing the Lord's Supper, praying together, some people even selling their own property if it meant they could contribute to the fund of the church to meet the needs of the body. And day after day, they went to corporate worship together. At this time, it was still taking place in the precincts of the temple. And from house to house, they were in each other's homes, living among each other, loving each other, being Christians together. That's the basic idea, the basic biblical idea of communion, the communion of the saints. Saints just being another word for Christians. Biblically... The communion of the saints means the common life that the saints share together. To have a real biblical communion or fellowship, it means we have to live our lives with each other together. Here's how the Westminster Confession, chapter 26, puts it. It says, All believers are united to Jesus Christ their head, by his spirit and by faith. And all believers have fellowship with him, with Jesus, in his grace, in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his glory. United to one another in love, the saints have fellowship in each other's gifts and in each other's grace, and are obliged, obligated, to perform those public and private duties which nourish their mutual good, both spiritually and physically. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. We all are the body of Christ. We're connected to Jesus as the head. And then we are supposed to share in each other's gifted, giftedness and share in each other's graces or gifts that God has given us. And we are to extend that grace we've received to each other. And we are obligated by Scripture to serve one another, to perform public and private duties or actions that nourish the mutual good of everybody. That means I should be serving somebody and somebody should be serving me and nobody's getting left out and no one's falling through the cracks. And we should do so both spiritually in our spiritual lives together, growing in the faith as disciples, but also 
physically, meeting each other's monetary and material and bodily and physical needs in this life. We take care of our own. We support each other. That's part of what it means to have fellowship, biblical fellowship, communion of the saints. The confession goes on to say this, by their profession of faith, saints are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion with each other in the worship of God and in the performance of other spiritual services for their mutual improvement. They are also bound to help each other in material things according to their different abilities and needs. In other words, see a need, meet a need. I see a need. Am I able to meet that need? Do I have time, opportunity, resources, availability? Then there's nothing stopping you from meeting that need. And the fact that God helped you see that need might just mean he, he helped you see it because he wants you to meet it. See a need, meet a need. And it concludes that paragraph by saying, This fellowship is to be offered as God gives the opportunity to everyone in every place who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's how our confession understands the communion of saints. And there's a slew of Bible verses. You can look this up for free online, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 26. There is just reams of Bible footnoted to every word, every sentence. And you can just go study this issue for yourself. It comes out of a whole host of scriptures. What I want to do for the rest of our time together this morning is look at how Paul talks about the communion of saints in chapter 12 of Romans, verses 9 through 21. Paul comes to this point in the, in the letter to the Romans, and he just got through talking about how we should use our giftedness to serve each other. This was our, our, one of our New Testament readings last week, where we read together chapter 12, verses 3 through 8 or 1 through 8. And he talked about having a transformed mind, being conformed to the will of God, and then using the grace and the gifts that God has given you according to the amount of faith he's given you to serve other people in the church. He continues that theme in verse 9. And from 9 to the end of the chapter, Paul just starts going stream of consciousness. He just gets caught up in the Spirit, and he just starts rolling with all of these seemingly disconnected commandments, all of these different directions. You know, love, help, serve, don't be slothful, don't revent, don't get vengeance, do this. And, and he just starts rolling. They just start pouring out of him all of these things that, that we should embody as individuals and as families and as a body of Christ. And so it might feel a little disorganized, almost like reading a chapter of Proverbs where it's just the one proverb after another seems to have nothing to do with each other. Now, some of these are connected, and what I've done to help us filter and organize what Paul says here, I've grouped all the passages, all the verses, into three categories, and those are the three points on your sermon insert. I've grouped the passage under three different headings, and I've used verse 9 as my sort of guide. Look what verse 9 says. It says, let love be genuine, that's number one, abhor what is evil, that's number two, and hold fast to what is good. 
So I've used that as a kind of a, a rubric or an outline to group all these passages into one of those three categories. There's a genuine love category, there's a good deeds category, and then there's an overcoming sin or evil category. So what I want to do is not linger on every verse for all it's worth. I want to just sort of move through under these three categories and just hit some highlights on what these instructions from the Holy Spirit through Paul in Romans means for us. So let's start with genuine love. Genuine love. Paul says, let love be genuine Paul does not want us to be a congregation, to be a church full of phony affection. Oh, yes, brother, I will pray for you. And you hadn't said one word to pray for him since he asked you two weeks ago. Oh, absolutely, I'll come and do this. Or, yeah, I'll be there if you need me. And then we don't show up. Let love be genuine. Let our affections for each other be authentic, where we don't have to just fake it and say the right thing and put on the mask and be, be a Christian, but we really do love each other. We really do. It's not something we have to be hypocrites about. Let love be genuine, not hypocritical. That's the first category. That's the first category. Genuine love. Let love be genuine. In verse 10, we have another instruction from Paul about love. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. That we are to love each other, not just as that stranger over there who sits on that side of the sanctuary, but to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. To see ourselves and feel ourselves connected to a family. Because at the, at the end of the day, that's what the church is. It is a big family. We are a local church that is built upon the idea of being a covenant family. Now, we have our own biological covenant families, our own units where we live in our own homes. But then we as a congregation are also a family. And so we should love each other with that kind of affection, a family-oriented affection. Love each other the way you love your family because in Christ you really are. You really are a family. Verse 11, he says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. This is a verse where the love is genuine love for God, for the Lord. Do not be slothful in your zeal. Zeal for what or zeal for who? Do not be slothful in your holy Christian zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Light the fire again, Christian. Don't be slothful and slow and negligent and cool in your devotion to serving the Lord and to being a Christian and to loving each other. Let love be genuine. And that means it's got to come from a place of zeal and fervor. Now, there are seasons in our lives 
times in our lives, certain, certain seasons of the year, certain times in the day, <laughs> like when you, like you got to get up and go to work Monday, or you're stuck in traffic, or you're waiting in an ungodly line at the store, and you don't feel a lot of fervor. <laughs> you don't feel zeal for the Lord. You feel like getting unsanctified <laughs> and letting somebody have a piece of your mind. We're sinners, we're fallen, we're fragile, we're frail. Lots of words for how needy and desperate we are. And this is why we have to rely upon the Holy Spirit. That's what all of chapter 8 was about. Letting the Spirit take control and fill us and flood us. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Genuine love is a fruit of the Spirit. So you've got to be a good spiritual soul farmer. You've got to sow the seed... You've got to water it and cultivate it and nurture it so that you have a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of the fruit of the Spirit, which means you look and love and live like Jesus because you have the same Spirit He has. So don't hear these commands as telling you grit your teeth and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get busy making your heart different. You can't do that. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the Word of God. And you need each other. But this is what we're aiming for. We want to cultivate this zeal, fervor, serving the Lord with zeal and fervor. And when we feel ourselves getting slothful, we hold each other accountable, we keep good, close spiritual inventory, and we work on our own hearts. We work on our hearts. And we help each other work on theirs. Always remembering to take the log out of our own eye before we try to examine specks in somebody else's. So that's what Paul says about genuine love in our passage. Let's move forward now to good deeds. He has a lot to say about good deeds or good works. In, in our theme verse for how we're organizing these points... In verse 9, he says, Hold fast to what is good. Cling to what is good. Hold it securely. Hang on for dear life to goodness. Moral, spiritual, ethical, biblical goodness. To cultivate not just a heart of love, but a will that is dominated by zeal, not just for the Lord, but for goodness. Walking in the will and ways of God. We want to cultivate moral and spiritual Christian excellence in our wills, in our conscience, so that it comes out in our actions, our words, our attitudes, our motives, our agendas. So that down at the bottom of the, the, the bottom springs where thought and action first bubble up inside of us, that down at the root we would just have sound spiritual health and goodness, moral excellence that walks in all the ways of the Lord. Hold fast to what is good. Do not hold it loosely. Hold it fast. Hold on for dear life. It's a way of saying be dedicated and committed to goodness. Which as a Christian, for a Christian, means obedience to the will of God. That's what we want to do. And good deeds. Our confession helps us on this too. What is a good deed? 
do good works, do good deeds. What is a good deed? We're not justified by good works. Well, what does that mean? What's a good work? Well, our confession helps us. There's a whole chapter on it because the Puritans thought of everything. There's a whole chapter on it. What's a good work? It's anything you do in obedience to a divine command. God gets to tell us what good works are so that we don't have to fumble around and make it up as we go. And since God defines what a good work is, when we check his word and obey it, we know for certain that we're being obedient and we know for certain that we're doing good works. If I go, if I go off script and I start doing my own thing, it might be good, it might not. We don't know. We have a standard and a guide that tells us what goodness is so that we don't come up with it in our own sight and we don't check our own fallen hearts and our own bad conscience or get it from culture or society. There's good stuff and there's bad stuff in culture and society. But there's only good stuff in God's Word. And if we check the will of God, we'll know for sure that we're walking in good deeds. Now, what does Paul have to say about what the good deeds are? Here in our passage. Look at verse 12. He says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Hmm. Rejoice in the hope we have as Christians. Be patient in the trials and struggles and tribulations that come our way. And be constant in prayer. That's the first Good work we should focus on. Working on our own souls. Cultivating joy in the hope of Christ, in the hope of the gospel. Cultivating patience when we bear up under difficult trials and circumstances. Because what does rejoicing in hope look like? It's not just something that stays private. It's when you're going through it, people can see you going through life as a Christian. And especially when you're struggling and suffering and you're bearing up under it with joy in your hope, with patience, taking up your cross, like Jesus said, following him no matter where it leads or what it costs, and doing so with hope in God and with joy and complete patience and long-suffering, trusting the Lord, marching nobly unto your inheritance, your heavenly reward. That, people see that in life. That looks like living Living these things out, not just having a feeling in your heart. The feeling in our hearts should be genuine, but it's got to work itself out. And it's got to be evident and detectable in a Christian life. And finally, be constant in prayer, he says in verse 12. Be constant in prayer, persistent, without ceasing, travailing with the Lord until he moves on your behalf. Giving him no rest until he blesses you, until he hears you. Always trusting him to answer you in his wisdom and in his time and on his terms. You're not twisting God's arm, but you're trusting a heavenly father and you're bending his ear night and day, constant, persistent, consistent in prayer. Sometimes we miss out because we give up on prayer a little too soon. Don't do that, Christian. Persist in your life of prayer. The first mark of a Christian is that he trusts God and he prays. 
That's the first thing that changes. You now have a relationship with God. And how do you have that relationship? One of the ways, one of the most important ways, is you cultivate a life of steady prayer, being in His presence. So that's the first good work we should focus on. He goes on, verse 13. And he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. See a need and meet a need. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Doesn't that sound like the communion of the saints to you? Contributing, helping, showing up, being there for each other. And then show hospitality. That's how you live a common life together. You know what each other's living rooms look like. You've sat at each other's tables and you've tasted each other's family recipes and you've met each other's kids and grandkids and you've done stuff together and you've served together and and it doesn't just have to be church stuff, but you you hang out together, you go watch the game together, you go shopping together, you go you just you spend life together because you like each other. Because <laughs> love is genuine and it's not just fake. Yeah, I'll smile at you at church and then I don't want to see you again for a week. Lord, help us. (laughs) Let love be genuine, like each other, invite each other over, do stuff with each other, do ministry together, do mission together, worship together, contribute to each other's needs, and show hospitality to each other. That's a good work we can work on. He goes on and says in verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Oh, this one could easily have fit under genuine love because it's a call for empathy. When someone in our body is weeping, we weep with them. We're not like Job's friends who sit there quietly and then start scolding him and telling him what sins he committed, and that's why you're going through this. (laughs) No, we weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We don't get jealous or envious. God blessed him. Where's my blessing? I've been praying for that, and he gets it. Whoops. <laughs> it, it, it got sent to the wrong address, you know? No. We have empathy with each other. We love each other. And when others rejoice, we rejoice. And when others suffer, we suffer with them. We go through it alongside of each other. We share life's joys and challenges as fellow believers. Verse 16 He says, live in harmony with each other. Might we seek to cultivate peace with each other? And when there's tension and sin and disagreement and nastiness and we mess up and because we're going to keep doing that because we're sinners, we strive to be at peace with each other. We strive to forgive. We strive to be patient and understanding and careful. And we try to be at peace with each other. Verse 18, last thing he says about good deeds. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you. Sometimes you'll try to live at peace with another believer, someone else in the church, and they just won't have it. They won't hear it. They don't want to reconcile. They don't want to forgive. They just don't want to be at peace with you. And you know what? You can't control that. So as far as it's up to you, you be obedient. And if they don't want to forgive or don't want to be obedient, let the Lord deal with that. That's, that's not your business anyways. To control the responses and attitudes of other people. You can't do that. 
All you can do is be obedient on your end. And as far as it's possible on your end, try to live at peace. Try to reconcile. Try to be a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. And if they won't have it, the Lord will deal with that. You leave it to Him. And that takes us to the last, the last point. Overcoming sin. Or as Paul says in verse 9, abhor what is evil. Hate what is evil. Love the good and hate what is evil or hate what is sinful. Abhor it. Want nothing to do with it. He says in verse 14, actually, he says this several times here in our passage. He'll say, don't do this, but instead do this. Don't do this, but instead do this. So it's, it's, it's similar to good deeds, except it has a negative side. Don't do this sinful thing. Overcome that sinful thing by doing this good thing instead. That's the idea. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So somebody doesn't like you, person on this side of the church doesn't like somebody on that side of the church, and there's beef, <laughs> and there's problems, right? You try to live peaceably, and if one person curses, you bless instead. You don't, you don't curse back. You don't wish evil on somebody, but you bless instead. Especially when an unbeliever persecutes, you absolutely bless instead of cursing. Instead of talking trash, instead of wanting to retaliate, instead of wanting to get back, you bless instead. Verse 16, after he says, live in harmony with one another, he says, do not be haughty or arrogant or prideful, but associate with the lowly. So that we're not doing these, here's the respectable people in the church, and here are the non-respectable people in the church. The riffraff. <laughs> here are the nice, clean, pretty people that everybody likes, and here are the yucky members of the body we'd rather not see. Cover them up. First class and second class Christians in the church. No. This says, don't, don't get cliquish like that. Don't be like, here are the nice, squeaky, clean Christians, and here are the ones that we don't want to hang out with, whether it's because of money or job or background or you name it. Associate with everybody and don't just have our preferred people, and we never associate with anybody else. Of course, it doesn't mean you can't have best friends. I mean, you're going to be better friends with some than others. It doesn't mean you have to be literally everybody's best friend. But it does mean that we don't say, this is our in-group and you're not welcome. Even though they're a member of the church. But we don't get arrogant and haughty and disassociate, but we actually try to make sure everybody's included. Everybody's welcome. Everybody takes part. Everybody has the same seat at the table together. Verse 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Give thought. Think about how to do what's honorable. This is like what he said in verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. If you want to have a competition in our church, this is a good one. Chili cook-off's a really good one. You should come to that one. That was my idea, chili cook-off. Well, Sarah helped. Sarah picked it out too. Chili cook-off's a great one. All right? Here's another competition, a spiritual one, and there's no winners. <laughs> and there's no blue ribbons to hand out. It's, let's have a contest to see who can honor another person the most. That means you've got to be the humblest. And if you're the humblest, you can't accept victory. Because <laughs> that's prideful. <laughs> you can't say, pin the blue ribbon on me. I'm the humblest person in our church. 
outdo each other in showing honor. Give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. Be the most respectful, the most courteous, the most thoughtful, the most selfless. Outdo each other in being other-focused and other-centered instead of self-centered. That's the idea. Last point this morning. He says, Paul says in verses 19 and 20, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. That's what we said earlier. You do what you can in obedience, and if they don't respond in a biblical way, if they're not obedient, you leave it to God. You leave it to Him. Leave it to the wrath of God. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then Paul ends where he started. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. And that's where we want to conclude this morning. The communion of the saints is summed up in verses 9 and 21. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what we want to be. We want to be a congregation that's a Romans 12, 9, and 21 kind of church. Where we are a community, a communion, a fellowship together. And that means, Christian, here's what we should be doing. We should be cultivating love, genuine love in our hearts for each other. We should be cultivating zeal and fervor for the Lord. And in that zeal and fervor, and out of a place of persistent prayer, we are zealous for good deeds. Zealous to go serve each other and be the body of Christ and be brothers and sisters to and for each other. Cultivating love, pursuing good works, and overcoming our own sin fighting against our own sin, not being, over, not being a church that's just overcome and overrun with sinfulness. Now, we're all sinners, and it's something we're never going to be fully rid of in this life, but we don't have to be dominated by it. We don't have to be a church that's characterized by just a bunch of self, selfish sinfulness all over the place. Now, I don't think we are that way, but we got to be careful that we not become that way. we got to be vigilant. Love for God, love for each other, a place full of good works and service, and a place where we fight against our own sin in pursuit of the holiness of God and the obedience that Christ requires. Let's be that kind of church. Let's truly be a communion of saints. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask and pray that you would, by your Spirit, Make us this kind of church to conform us into the image of Christ so that we can be a community full of biblical fellowship. And as we welcome other people into our church, they can see and feel and experience for themselves the warmth of Christ, genuine love, where we care about each other, where we help each other, where we serve each other, where we seek to live at peace, where we fight against our own sin, where we seek to overcome evil with good. Lord, help us in our weakness. Strengthen us by your word and spirit to be this kind of people for our own good and for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.